Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, welcome to Wikipedia. I am Mickey Willardin and you are listening to me have a conversation with my friend Cliff Harvey again on the show. This week Dr Cliff Harvey brings his knowledge and expertise in the area of fasting and so we have a really good conversation about our own clinical experience and how we interpret the scientific information in and around fasting and I know that those of you who are interested in time-restricted feeding who have dabbled in a bit of intermittent fasting 16-8 one meal a day OMAD that kind of thing hopefully you will enjoy these insights and if it's new to you and it's not really something you've ever really thought about then maybe this will just be like a good platform to sort of begin those conversations this was recorded right at the start of our lockdown here in Auckland and I mentioned that I will be speaking to Don Lehman and in fact I already did speak to Professor Lehman and that was a few episodes ago so um, it was a little bit out of order but hey this information is timeless anyway. So to remind you Cliff Harvey is New Zealand's expert on the effects of a ketogenic diet in a healthy population but he is so much more than that. He has been helping people to live healthier, happier lives and to perform better since starting in clinical practice way back in the late 1990s. Over this time he has been privileged to work with many Olympic, professional, Commonwealth and other high performing athletes. He has also worked with many people to overcome the effects of chronic and debilitating health conditions and along the way he has founded or co-founded many successful businesses in the health, fitness and wellness space including the Nutrition Store Online, where my name Mickey, M-I-K-K-I in capitals, saves you 10% of any purchases, and the Holistic Performance Institute, which is New Zealand's leading certification and diploma for health, nutrition, health coaching and performance that has many of the world experts teaching on that course, so students really are learning from the best. He has over 20 years as a strength and nutrition coach experience and in addition to his PhD research, he is a registered clinical nutritionist, qualified naturopath and holds a diploma in fitness training and health coaching in patient care. So you can find Cliff over at cliffharvey.com and also the nutrition store online at www.nutritionstore.com online and we will put all of those links to Cliff and how you can find him and his Holistic Performance Institute and Nutrition Store online in the show notes. Before you dive into this interview I'd just like to remind you that the best way to support the podcast is to subscribe on your favorite platform and leave a five-star review that would be amazing because it just increases our visibility and um, our reach to more people 
And if you are wanting to support just a little bit more, you can sign up to the recipe access portal on my website, mickeywilladin.com, which gives you access to over 600 recipes that are regularly updated to my weekly email, to member-only Facebook group pages and forums and Facebook Lives and the ability to pick my brain on anything nutrition related through our platform online messaging system. All right, team, for now, though, please enjoy this conversation that I have with Dr. Cliff Harvey. Yeah. So, uh, Clifford, it's been a minute, not actually that long. It's like been a week since we've caught up, which, you know, I feel very privileged that I get to have another hour of your time. So thank you for joining me today. The, the pleasure's all mine, of course, Mickey. Dr. <laughs> Willardin, I should say. <laughs> Dr. Williams, come on, come on. <laughs> Dr. Willardin's right. Uh, and uh, and obviously last time we caught up, we spoke on sort of issues much wider than nutrition, much wider than sort of the individual and, and their behaviours and how it impacts health. You know, we geek out on a lot of things, but last week was not, you know, that wasn't our conversation uh this week however i'm just quite interested to have a bit of a geek out on that individual behavior stuff on things around fasting on your you know any sort of evolution in your thinking around it ketogenic diets i don't know just you know that whole sort of um scope of what we seem to have Twitter arguments about every week. Yeah. Well, okay, wait, I don't have a Twitter argument, but I see and note Twitter arguments. So yeah, yeah. Um, are you fasting this morning? Let me start there. No, I'm not. <laughs> Straight up, I'm not. I don't, um, I tend to not fast nowadays because I, I like to have a, a shake straight after training. So I train every morning and have a, you know, big protein shake. So somewhere between... 40 and 60, 40 to 60 grams of protein, uh, pretty low carbs, really, maybe a little bit of fat added in, but I, I keep it pretty much just protein heavy in the morning. Um, but I find if I don't have that shake after training, I tend to undershoot my protein intake pretty consistently. You know, even if I've got attention on trying to get it in from whole food, it's just, you know, life gets in the way and it doesn't get up to that optimal level. So I, I just feel a heck of a lot better when I'm having that big protein shake in the morning yeah interesting isn't it like I was listening to a podcast with uh professor Don Lehman who in fact is coming on right uh Wikipedia. I'm I'm interviewing him next week which I'm super excited about and he is like one of these I'm not going to say he's a pioneer in the protein space but he might you know certainly in this sort of the last 30 40 years he's really informed how we understand protein metabolism protein breakdown and and things like that i think it'd be fair to say he's a pioneer because previous to you know probably the last 20 years i think protein was really underappreciated as a nutrient except for maybe at various times through history people had sort of had an interest in it and maybe promoted the benefits of higher protein I think the um, the fairly structural thought pattern was that, you know, protein intake didn't need to be all that high. And so I think people mm. like um, Lehman and and a lot of the people that were early on involved in setting up the ISSN, you know, who were really promoting higher levels of protein intake for athletes, but then obviously that sort of translates out into the mainstream population as well. I mean, they, they definitely were pioneers, and a lot of those guys were – really the reason why I started looking outside of the normal nutrition paradigm into 
you know, higher protein, lower carb, all that kind of stuff. Do you know, I feel like my sort of introduction into the importance of protein was on the back of Bill Phillips. Now, do you remember the name Bill Phillips? Well, I remember it very well because I was involved with EAS back in the 90s. And so <sighs> I didn't know Bill personally, but I had, um, had, I had had some brief conversations with people at EAS, including his brother, Sean. Um, you know, I was in, had conversations back in the day with people who were involved with muscle media, like Charles Poliquin and uh, TC Luoma, oh, yeah. all those types of people. I was in, you know, communication with Pavel back in the day. And so I was pretty, pr- pretty in, not, not in with those guys, but I certainly knew, knew them by extension and they, mm. they maybe knew of me. They probably wouldn't remember now, but I, I also had a couple of supplement shops and we sold EAS supplements and we were, I think one of the first stores, if not the first store to really get, really get on board with their body for life program. And, uh, we helped a number of people go through that who went on to be, um, regional champions and all sorts. I've got to say like that. So yes, for, so for those people who are unfamiliar, um, EAS was a massive and it continues to be a massive sort of supplement brand, brand but I believe maybe they've been sold, bought out by, by someone else, but I still see yeah. Myplex stuff and, and whatnot around. Um, but back in, it was a late nineties for me, early two thousands, I got my hands on that body for life book. And whilst yes, um, it was written by Bill Phillips and it was set up as a plan for, uh, to balance both your training and your nutrition, it was pretty simple principles, if I'm re- recalling correctly. And it was it was certainly a balanced approach to diet where you had a fist of protein, a fist of carbs, two fists of vegetables, a thumb of fat, and you had that six times a day. Or, you know, that might be wrong, but not too far removed from possibly what, what they suggested. In addition to that, the, the training wasn't hardcore. They were sort of really streamlining the training approach in the book. And I do, und- and so it might have been uh, 20 minutes of cardio or 20 minutes of weights uh, most days of the week. You got a, a, they called it a cheat day. I, you and I aren't necessarily um, in with that line of description of, you know, just eating whatever you like. But there was a Sunday was the, the, the cheat day. And then the closer you got to the end of your 12 weeks, as I understand it, the more that that cardio ramped up. And, you know, people really, you know, tried to kind of push the gamut on their, on their exercise to get as lean and fit as possible within that 12 weeks. And whilst, um, yes, of course, it was built and designed around EAS supplements, I particularly remember the book and Bill writing in the book, hey, you don't actually need the supplements. You can do it all sort of from food. And and I think seeing the balance of nutrients in those meals back at that time when I was studying my undergraduate in physical education, just about to begin my nutrition degree, I remember thinking – Oh yeah, protein. I never really thought about protein before. Yeah, it was a very simple program. And, you know, looking at it now 25 odd years later from when I first was involved with it, it's it would still work. You know, it's not like mm. it, it's old or outdated. It's not like it, it was, you know, a, a fad or that it was extreme. Although obviously some participants did take the challenge very seriously and did become pretty extreme with it. The The body for life system itself was just based around basic portion planning, uh, which a lot of us, I guess, would use iterations of not, not that we're iterating that, but you know, we would all use 
portion planning in some respects for our clients. You know, I, I often recommend if people don't need further qualification that they just take that modular approach to meal planning where they're sort of looking at one to two yeah. palm sizes of protein. Um, I, I tend to obviously prioritize protein, then veggies, then fat, and then have carb as the sort of flexible nutrient. Um, but irrespective, it's still more or less the same and the outcomes are, are pretty good. You know, it's, it's pretty basic stuff. Yeah, it is. And, and I think we got on this because, um, or one, you know, that I'm very, I'm, uh, very similar to you in that, um, our sort of approach to nutrition and whilst people don't like it, I would say that you and I are probably in the camp of, I'm going to say it, earning your carbs, you know, like that's essentially the, you know, your carb intake would uh, needs to sort of match your activity, you know, because it's a fuel source. And so for the most part, if you are looking at optimizing body composition, that's the nutrient, that, that flexible nutrient, you have a bit more if you're a bit active, a bit less if you're less active. And the way some people term that is, of course, earning your carbohydrate. But I know, you know, I'll have 18 people DM me after they hear me say that and say, oh, you're setting people up for uh, obsessiveness around food, whatever. <laughs> My point, though, about... 10 minutes ago was um, the whole protein at breakfast. And you you mentioned that you don't feel great if you don't have that protein input. And Professor Lehman, which is something I'm super interested to talk to him about, is he's of the similar mindset that what really matters in terms of protein intake is that hit at breakfast and that hit at dinner, actually. Yeah. So it's not that lunch protein doesn't matter, but it's we actually can't say that it does because there hasn't been a lot of research in that middle meal right. space. Yeah, and that would probably match my my biggest protein intake would definitely be first thing in, in the morning after well, after training. I, I train faster, mm. uh, and mm -hmm. at night, you know, a small typically a smaller lunch, and that's a behavioural thing. You know, I know that we'll probably talk a bit about behavioural aspects of nutrition today, but. That's critically important. If I have a really big lunch, irrespective of whether it's low carb, high carb, whatever, I do feel more sluggish. So my pattern at the moment, because I'm, um, you know, trying to put some muscle on and lose a bit of body fat. I know that those aren't always complimentary, but just basically trying to, you know, just just lean up a little bit uh, is to really prioritize protein intake. So I have a big protein shake in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, I always, because of expedience, I mix up two or three you know, like meals worth of shakes. So I can mm -hmm. just put them in jars in the fridge. Nice. Uh, so I have a big protein shake first thing in the morning. Uh, I usually a smaller lunch because I don't really want to overload. I have, again, a big protein shake, uh, the same one that I've had for breakfast immediately after I finish work. And I finish work quite early, around 3 p.m., mm -hmm. Uh, and then, uh, you know, a, a, a bigger dinner. So dinner's my biggest meal, which I know some people don't agree with, but it just works with me uh, or for me because I, I find it's a really good way because we eat fairly early mm. to really just relax. You know, obviously food irrespective, but also if you're having some carbohydrate with that meal, you know, that does suppress cortisol levels. It really mm. does help to to slip into that relaxation cycle, despite the fact that some people are, you know, very committed to different circadian patterns where they mm. say you should eat most of your calories in the morning. Mm. I really think that if we look at the research on that, it is quite equivocal. You know, we, we do see a lot of variability between studies, but also between individuals. Yeah. And if we take a step back, we also need to consider that for most of these things that we discuss, 
the effect between different strategies or the effect size between different strategies is pretty small, right? Yeah. The difference in the effect. So um, really what works well for someone, assuming it is working, is, you know, a viable strategy. And I don't think we should really try and, you know, go, go down the rabbit hole and criticize people's structures if they're working. Because they may not fit with best practice. Mm. They may not fitness fit with what we believe is the, you know, purported best and it may not fit with what we do Mm. but all of that's inconsequential yeah it's really interesting that whole fasting uh time restricted eating space and i know it's it's a super exciting thing to be able to see the emerging studies and see the potential benefits for a lot of people in that time restricted eating space and you know that you know if you're looking at a population if nothing else they they shorten their eating window to say even 10 to 12 hours they're going to get some sort of purported benefit depending on where they come from and it's always context and I I'm really so mindful of that now because of I would say for probably 80% of the time right now I'm probably outside of that 12 hour eating window because of my training being earlier and also my sort of I have dinner but instead of I'm a little bit like you Cliff in that instead of having that protein shake sort of mid-afternoon, I tend to have it after dinner as a sort of, I used to have like chocolate and peanut butter, but I actually get, feel my, my, I'd feel a bit sluggish and a bit, my digestion wouldn't be so great because, you know, peanut butter's great, but for me, I can't have a lot of it without having sort of digestive issues. Right. But having that protein, nice cream, I call it, so I sort of make the protein shake, but it's really thick and delicious. Um, and that's uh, after dinner, but then if I'm training early and if I'm doing an, a, either like I'm, I'm just coming off a big block of training whereby I'm, I'm going to be consuming fuel before I train because actually overall I, I do need it. Whereas if I was just sort of being much more relaxed in my training, not really training for anything, I can easily do faster training if it's a shorter session or, you know, it's, it's not as it's an inconsequential session if you like, but yeah. with, with my training load as it has been, I'm probably my eating window is beyond what the uh, time restricted eating experts would say is optimal. However, that said, I am athletic. I'm not the person that you will often see in these studies. I'm not sedentary, overweight, carrying excess body fat and or metabolically unhealthy. So that I think that's a context that people forget with time restricted eating and fasting. Yeah, I agree. And I I think this is an area in which there's a lot of, you know, a lot of mechanisms are discussed. Mm. People talk a lot about the mechanisms of, well, not the mechanisms of fasting, but the the mechanistic outcomes of fasting, Mm. like autophagy, like, um, you know, increases in, in NAD, things like that. And that's all very interesting, but we also obviously need to return to the research and look at what the functional outcomes are. And there's quite a lot of research on fasting. Yeah. You know, I've, I've reviewed all of the research on fasting through the, periodically through the years because, you know, I became interested in fasting as a kid, mm. really, um, for n- not physi- physiological, but for sort of spiritual reasons. Mm. Um, I was a practicing Buddhist, you know, m- most of my life. But then I became more interested in fasting for its physiological benefits in the late 90s when I was working with uh, some Islamic bodybuilders. Mm. And so they were really concerned about the effects of the Ramadan fast on their um, progress in bodybuilding. And even looking at the research back then in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, 
it, it, there wasn't a lot, but there was enough, uh, you know, especially coming out of Middle Eastern universities. And it was really showing that there, there wasn't really a, a decrement mm. resulting from fasting. There were actually a lot of benefits. Uh, and so, you know, we, we always need to go back to that. But we also need to consider that when fasting is compared to standard calorie restriction, although, you know, individual results vary between studies, if we look at reviews of that, so we look at the research broadly, I mean, the, the results are pretty much the same, mm. you know, with the exception of probably one marker, I'd say, where IGF-1 is typically lower in fasting versus calorie restriction. So there might be benefits there for, for cancer, for example, prevention of cancer or cancer treatment. Uh, but outside of that, you know, the vast majority of any benefits are, are simply due to calorie restriction. Mm. And so I think what that leads is to a couple of elephants in the room, right? Number one is that people talk a lot about the benefits of fasting and therefore people should fast. And that's pretty much where I draw the line. And this isn't a shift in my thinking. This is a consistent thought that I've had for 24 years, I guess, Yeah, is that we can't apply one thing arbitrarily to all people because if the major benefit is that it helps people to auto-regulate their energy intake. And for most people, that's of benefit because it's auto-regulating them down. Mm -hmm. If someone is a habitual under-eater and there's a potential there that they auto-regulate their energy intake down even further, then they're going to become even more energy deficient. So they're, they're going to be more likely to suffer from those, you know, sort of red S um, relative energy deficiency syndrome symptoms. And so I don't think we can apply fasting universally when some people are going to be habitual under eaters and while most people are probably not in that camp i I do think it's a significant minority of people Uh, maybe up to who knows we're just sort of spitballing but we we sort of estimate that it's probably around 20 percent of people are habitual under eaters Um, the other elephant in the room i think is is protein intake given that we want to optimize protein and let's say for, for me at my body weight, I'm wanting to get in a minimum of 160 grams of protein a day. It, it is going to be quite difficult to do that if I'm following, say, a one meal a day approach or even a two meal a day approach, because those are pretty massive meals. And I wouldn't consider that my protein synthesis from those enormous meals is going to be optimal. You know, we don't, we certainly don't need to eat six or eight or 10 meals a day. Um, but for me, being able to split that up over four meals or two meals, two shakes, as I do, is a heck of a lot easier. And I think it's far more conducive to to muscle um, accretion and retention. Mm. And it's interesting, isn't it? So that, you know, a lot of the people that we see, which would be quite similar, might even be under that term, dare I say it, the worried well. Now, that term worried well, we spoke about last time with regards to supplements. And um, the standard line is, oh, yeah, people who take supplements are the worried well, people who don't need to worry about taking supplements. Whereas people who have heard about fasting and who might be adopting it might almost fall into that camp of they're the people who may be least likely to have to follow an aggressive fasting protocol in order to yeah. get the major health benefits. Let's talk about habitual under-eaters and we... Um... This is not really based on anything apart from, a, I guess, a gut. But, you know, we, we you and I and, and others were looking at doing some survey research mm. on under-eating. Yeah. And we had sort of spitballed um, 
but between us, the idea that, you know, from our clinical experience, maybe 20 odd percent of people are habitual under-eaters. Now, I see quite a lot of habitual under-eaters and they're often people who are following, you know, fairly extreme versions of keto or, you know, are fasting very aggressively. Mm. And they, they don't realize that they're under-eating, but when we actually look at it and quantify what they're doing, they're eating very minimal calories. And so for those people there, they're typically trying to get those benefits, right? They're really enamored with the ideas of particularly autophagy, mitophagy, you know, boosting Mm. NAD, things like that. Um, But not realizing that all of those things are kind of inconsequential if you're simply not providing the fuel and the nourishment that you require to thrive. Yeah. Super interesting, isn't it? Because I put a post up on Facebook yesterday about fasting how fasting is great until it actually isn't. And I think that's describing, ex- yeah, exactly what you were talking about, right? It's that people adopt it and it for a period of time, it, things do tend to work really well, but it's almost like any sort of dietary change. If it's now removing certain types of foods that might be upsetting your gut or might be creating blood sugar stabilization issues, when you sort that out, it's awesome. But the thing that often I see is, well, if I feel this awesome at this rate, I'm going to do it a little bit more, do a little bit harder, so I feel even more awesome. Yeah, certainly can be. I mean, I, I see that in practice, and equally I see people who have legitimate health concerns who have taken up fasting or something else as a way to, to try and correct that, um, but particularly IBS. You know, I see a lot of clients with IBS who have started fasting or they've started doing keto or, or various sort of I don't, I don't want to say restrictive in a negative sense, but, you know, they, they are more restrictive forms of eating. And often they get good results, but then they start to get a bit of a rebound. I've seen this a lot with IBS where people start avoiding foods and get some benefit, but perhaps over-restrict or over-fast, and then their IBS comes back with a vengeance. And I think the reason in that case is probably because of undernourishment, underfueling, uh, the effect of, of that on, you know, our latent stress state, so our catecholamine production, the effect of that on the gut, and then it basically becomes this cycle. And I've, I've had a lot of success in the last couple of years um, helping people to improve their IBS, you know, recover from IBS in a lot of cases by applying nutrition strategies that are far less restrictive. So fast for a shorter period of time or add a meal back, Uh, you know, maybe don't be so strict on the keto because it's probably unnecessary for you. You can still stay low carb, but you know, you can have a lot more flexibility within that. Have a broader compendium of foods while still avoiding some of the key trigger foods for that individual. And I want to reiterate the, the importance of protein as well and how that's not often discussed with respect to fasting because typically if if we all agree that you know the and we should that the biggest impact of fasting is to water regulate energy down then that is of benefit to a lot of people no doubt because that's obviously the challenge right is that people are inadvertently consuming too much and yes i'm going to get criticism because people say you're just a calories in calories out guy and anyone who knows me knows that not, that's not true but we also can't get away from the first law of thermodynamics notwithstanding while we can get a lot of benefits from any strategy that allows us to auto-regulate our energy down, we might be able to get more benefit, particularly if we're looking for the long-term, you know, muscle retention in particular, 
from having strategies that also allow us to get in sufficient protein. And if I were to stick to a one meal a day strategy, for example, as a lot of people do, I really don't think it would work because I would find it near impossible to get in 160 grams of protein in one meal. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's a, a real challenge. That would obviously be a real challenge. And I know people are probably uh, aware of this, you know, that 160 grams of protein isn't 160 grams of steak. It is, you know, we're, we're talking about almost four times 160 grams of steak, you know, like 600 grams. Like that's, people often think, I often talk to people and they're like, I get 100 grams of protein a day because they eat 100 grams of chicken, which, you know, protein source food, protein, the nutrient different. Exactly. And, you know, I wonder whether, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's, it's not optimal for protein synthesis either to have just one bolus of protein in a day. Mm. You know, it, it probably is beneficial to split that up and it doesn't need to be over a massive amount of meals, but let's say, you know, two to four meals is going to be superior, I would say, to one. Yeah, and that's what um, I'm really interested to talk to Professor Lehman about, because as I understand it, there's sort of three to four may be the, the most appropriate amount. But again, we he's like, well, we know breakfast, we know dinner. Um, there's certain a number of hours in between. It doesn't have to be every three hours that you're you know, stimulating that muscle protein synthesis process. But as I understand it, you shouldn't do any more than, say, six hours without sort of having a bit of a protein hit. But that might be wrong. And that's, you know, I'm, that's what I'm interested to talk to him about. It's interesting too, Mickey, because you, you you know you mentioned breakfast and dinner. Mm. I've used fasting strategies myself and with clients in the past that are based around big protein feedings at just breakfast and dinner. Mm. So it's it's different to what most people consider fasting because people think that it either needs to be early or late. Yeah. And so you're sort of compressing your your feeding window, but I don't think there's anything like wrong arbitrarily with having a two meal a day strategy that bookends the day either mm. and for some people that works really well because particularly if they're really busy through the day and they don't like eating while they're busy it, it's just an opportunity to have a big meal then work through the day and have another big meal to sort of book in the day collapse down your cortisol relax you know all those good things so uh, there, there are a lot of different strategies out there and to, to a large degree the proof of the pudding's in the heating right if, yeah. if what you're doing is giving you the results that you want then it's a viable strategy. Totally. And I do wonder about the evolutionary basis for that too, Cliff. Like there will be populations who um, sort of, um, Michael, Dr. Michael Rose has talked about this before and he talks about a, a, an organic agricultural diet whereby there are populations in Eurasia, which is, I, as I understand it, a combination of Europe and Asia, but hey, I might be wrong about that. And, and actually probably am because <laughs> I know, like I'm the worst at geography. That aside, I, I I think you're pretty pretty fair to say that's correct. Okay, good, good, good. Um, whereas our our recent ancestors of like twenty thousand years ago have been well equipped to to deal with organic wheat because that's part of their part of their lifestyle back then, and so potentially for those individuals, not only would they be potentially more starch tolerant than other populations, but if they weren't living a nomadic lifestyle, then potentially they weren't re required to be out all day sort of hunting and gathering and, and being away from a food source to then bring it back to the camp to, to consume. So I guess my point is, is that for some people having that extended fast or having the like eating sort of 
similarly sized meals throughout the day might be an, an evolutionary sort of, um, they might be well equipped for that and might feel good on that. Whereas potentially if your recent ancestors were much still more sort of nomadic, uh, where they probably ate later on in the day, finished off what they had in the morning and then went out hunting and gathering and not really eating all day, then maybe that particular person is going to respond better to the fasting approach that you just described. Yeah, I mean, quite possibly. Mm. And, you know, I think we also need to consider that there is no perfect diet for anyone, right? Mm. There are just strategies that work and those can shift over time. You know, and I know that Eric, uh, Eric Helms and I have talked a lot about this in the past, the idea of sort of outcomes focused eating. Mm. What I mean by that is that people will often try to find the best diet for them. Yep. Right. So let's say I'm a keto person. I'm going to say, well, keto is the best diet for me. Yeah. And it has to be this particular idea of keto that I have under 50 grams of carbs, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But let's say that person then wanted to gain appreciable amounts of muscle or they were starting to do a lot more higher intensity activity it would seem silly for them to be constrained by what at that point has become a dogma, which is now in contrast to what their physiological requirements actually are. Now, I'm not saying that someone who thrives on keto should should stop it necessarily, mm. but there can be flexibility where, you know, as you and I have discussed, as we've discussed with Dan uh, Plews and, and others, one person's keto may not be the other person's and one person's keto at one time may not be the keto that they follow at different stages for different outcomes. Mm. So for example, you know, you might be a keto athlete like Dan Plews, who actually eats a relatively large uh, amount of carbohydrate while still being, you know, often in functional ketosis because his overall energy requirement is so high. Now, if he were really dogmatic about it and was to say, well, no, I'm not going to eat over this arbitrary amount of carbohydrate, then he would be sacrificing his performance. Mm. So this is where I think we we have flexibility as humans who are really, along with pigs, the perfect omnivores. Uh, we can use, as a species, a huge amount of different strategies. Even as individuals, we can use a huge amount of strategies. I, I do well on high-carb diets, mm-hmm. but I equally do really well on low-carb. Mm-hmm. And it really comes down to what my goals are and how I'm feeling at the time uh, and what is you know, making me qualitatively feel the best as well. You know, Cliff, you mentioned, and I like that we're sort of not using you as a case study, but you've mentioned a couple of things during our conversation that relate to what your current practices are, which people always find super interesting, myself included. And whilst right now you're saying you're trying to build muscle, yet also uh, minimize body fat gain or even lose body fat, which for a long time we thought was were mutually exclusive sort of goals. Can you sort of talk to us about how the thinking may have changed around that or how our understanding might have sort of evolved? It's a really good question because I'm not sure that the thinking has entirely changed. I think it's that it's just known to be far more nuanced. Mm. Again, though, you know, if we're looking at the research, it's going to tell us certain things. And I think it's, most people would agree, and I think it's fairly clear that if you want to get maximal fat loss, then that should be a focus. Yeah. And the focus should obviously be on, you know, enough protein to preserve muscle, which is actually possibly even higher than what you would require when you're gaining. Yeah. Right. Um, but obviously you need that calorie restriction and um, the other things that, that go towards losing body fat. Um, obviously if the, the 
priority is to gain a lot of muscle, then that should be the focus. And obviously you're going to want to be very hypercaloric with sufficient protein and all those other things. So those things probably would be to some degree mutually exclusive. However, in certain people like a novice athlete, someone who's just started weight training, you can see prodigious changes in both. You can Mm. see a lot of body fat loss and a lot of muscle gain. Um, Even in people who are fairly advanced though, and this is probably not well illustrated in the literature, I think there are times when you can see significant muscle gain and significant fat loss where you're shifting within your own cycles of nutrition. What Mm. I mean by that is that if you've been fairly free and flexible with what you're doing, and maybe as I had, you'd been drifting a little bit more into the sort of convenience foods and things just through, you know, recent life changes and whatnot, then by by changing the qualitative nature of the diet, I, I think you can get, you know, more substrate deposition within muscle. You can certainly get some actual myofibrillar muscle growth and you will also lose some body fat because your substrate um, partitioning or your nutrient partitioning is going to be better. In other words, you're going to be more likely to store nutrients within that more functional tissue of of muscle, less likely to be overly adipose in terms of storage. So I think those two things can happen, but also within microcycles, you know, one thing that I've been doing lately is is cycling down my calories to to lose a bit more body fat, but then bringing that back over, say, a four-week period back to maintenance and then going a little bit hypercaloric for a few weeks. So I can sort of cycle between fat loss and muscle gain. Mm. Now, I'm not typically someone who does a lot of tracking or quantification because generally for my my usual health and performance for the sports that I'm involved in, I don't need to. But whenever there is a specific goal that you want to achieve, obviously it helps to be a little bit more fine-tuned about it. And I, I guess the analogy, a really good analogy actually, is the one that Dan John uses – it's either you have um, bus stop or park bench, right? When you're on the park bench, you're basically just putting in time, doing your thing. Whereas with the bus stop, you're waiting for the bus. So yeah. there's a time dependent outcome. And that's sort of, that. that's not usually most of your living training year, but certainly for certain periods, you, you want to really focus on a particular outcome. You've got to be more defined about what you're doing. Mm. And I don't think there's a problem with that either. Like I, I think that, I know I'm going on here, but the a, a lot of the, the feedback we now get is don't track, mm. don't quantify, don't do these things because that is going to be triggering for people or it's going to create an idea of, of shame or victimization. But it, it doesn't need to. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, the intention, if we're doing things for ourselves, can be quite contra to that. If I'm not triggered by doing some tracking every now and then, and I'm not approaching it in a way that is that I'm within which I'm feeling shame or I'm feeling guilt or that I don't like myself or the way I look, because I'm actually I'm cool with the way I look. Mm. I'm cool with the way my body is. I love every part of my body, even if it's a little bit fat at times. That's cool. Like that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fine for me. Yeah. It's just an indication that when I see that, I think, you know what? For my long-term health, this is an, an indicator of something that's not quite right in my lifestyle. So I can just fine-tune that a little bit. You know, and the big, big indicator for me recently was that my, I, I think I mentioned this last time, my waist uh, measurement yes. had got up over half of my height. Mm. 
Now, I'm going to have a slightly blockier midsection than the normal person as well, because I have done a lot of heavy lifting through my life. So I have bigger erector spinae, I've got bigger obliques, things like that. So I'm probably never going to be this svelte, thin, you know, lean, uh, wasted person. However, it was still an indicator. And when I looked at myself realistically, I realized that, you know what, I, I have become a little bit too adipose. And it's not necessarily going to be conducive to long-term health. Mm. Interestingly, as I started losing body fat, I noticed that my joint pain went way down. Yeah. You know, um, other things, you know, brain fog and things like that, which weren't terrible because I'm a very healthy person overall, but they improved markedly. And it just goes to show that the milieu of inflammatory things that happen, that inflammatory cascade that results from uh, our adipose-driven inflammation it is actually pretty pronounced. Yeah. And anyone who feels that and experiences it is going to have a very clear indication in their mind that, hey, there are certain things I can do, not for anyone else, but just for me to feel a heck of a lot better. Yeah. So does that involve for you, you mentioned that you're not normally a tracker, but has that involved over the period of what you're you're doing are you tracking some calories in your hypocaloric are you sort of being more mindful of you know how high you push the calories when you're uh in that sort of surplus is that how you're using tracking cliff yeah and like i say i don't track frequently but periodically i will and usually for me that involves probably only two periods of three days in any given year but like recently, if I do have a defined goal, then I will track for longer. So I tracked for three weeks yep. and that was really just to make sure that I was, you know, hitting those hypo caloric targets. And then as I started to ease back into more, you know, closer to maintenance and a little bit hyper, um, I, I don't track per se. I just do a little bit of planning and then I know roughly how much I should be having at each meal. And yeah. I know that if I don't need to be really strict on anything, I'm, you know, I've been in the game long enough to know pretty much what is in a meal. Yeah. But generally too, like if I'm gaining, um, this is a bit of a cheat here, like a cheat in terms of like a, you know, gaming cheat. Yeah. I'll usually just have a good idea about what my maintenance calories are and how much protein I should be taking in, things like that. But then if I have a treat after dinner or something like that, I'm not worried about it because I figure... I'm not going to go completely overboard, but that's probably going to be enough extra calories to fuel the muscle growth. Yeah, nice. You know, I think tracking for me, and I've spoken to my friend Julianne, uh, our friend Julianne Taylor about this as well, is that it's, you know, it's something relatively... A very good nutritionist. Yes, a very good nutritionist. Um, it's been some rel- like relatively new thing for me over the last year. And what I find, it's the opposite is true. It actually really helps me ensure that I feel enough because, you know, we spoke about people who are habitual under eaters. I absolutely fall into that camp. And so by tracking yeah. calories, what that allows me to do is go, right, okay, I need to make sure that I'm getting in this after dinner or I'm having this additional snack or I'm putting this additional thing on my lunch because otherwise I can very easily um, habitually undereat for successive days. And where I find what happens, I know qualitatively that that happens because my sleep starts to become disrupted and I start feeling a little bit more irritable and a bit grumpy, but um, I don't want to wait for the qualitative stuff. I want to make sure that I prevent it from happening in the first place. And I, that's where tracking has just been invaluable for me, I think. Yeah. Well, interestingly, 
I often underread as well. But if I'm not, you know, fully aware of what I'm doing, maybe if I'm slipping a little bit, I might still be underreading. But it's just the distribution of what I'm eating is not quite on point either. Mm. And so that's where tracking really helps. Particularly, I know we've discussed this before, particularly it comes down a lot of the times to making sure you're taking in enough protein. Mm -hmm. And without realizing it, sometimes if I'm slipping a little bit, it's simply about not getting enough protein, maybe getting a little bit too much of the refined food in there. And so even though I'm not going to put on massive amounts of body fat, my body composition is still not going to be as good as it otherwise could be yeah you know and again it does it's not even about looking ripped or anything it's just that there is a certain point at which any of us will recognize that our body fat has got a little bit too high for us Mm. and that's then driving that inflammatory cascade which is going to cause a bunch of other problems and it's not till we have actually been leaner and we've had some consistency of a really good lifestyle that includes, you know, the, the minimum effective doses for, for movement, whether it be resistance, endurance, cardio type stuff, uh, you know, a diet that's qualitatively based around ultra, uh, unrefined foods, things like that. It's not till we've been in that consistent process for a little while that we really recognize how different we feel doing that versus how we were when we were just, um, you know, getting by. Yeah, totally. And I feel that you've sort of that that term minimum effective dose is so important here with when we discuss nutrition and exercise related uh things things isn't the word i wanted damn it barry just uh cut that a little bit what was it uh d- uh i was uh, gonna say stuff oh uh, yeah yeah i know things and stuff like <laughs> god we are our brains man on point um but when we discuss these um you know components of nutrition and exercise minimum effective dose really is uh, i think a really key concept that i want people to consider and if we go back to our discussion around fasting people are thinking that to fast you know to go in and and do a 24 hour fast once a week or do you know even two 24 hour fasts in a week, let's say Monday and Tuesday, for example, um, that that's sort of required in order to optimize their metabolic health, well-being, and and a great way to sort of cut calories, for example. But most yeah. people who adopt that approach, who are doing it from a body composition point of view, um, never see the outcomes that they want. Like I haven't met anyone who has said, yeah, I did that and it worked awesome. Most people do it and don't really, um, they do it because they think it's what they should do, but don't really sort of evaluate what impact it necessarily is having. So with minimum effective dose with fasting, if you want to do it, that's awesome. And if you can find a way that works for you, that's awesome. But it doesn't have to be, uh, if we're just thinking about optimizing health and well-being, it doesn't have to be three to five days a month or. 18-6 every day of the week or Mm. one meal a day or anything like that like people often like to go to the extremes where it's just not necessary yeah and I think within that people need to consider that it's very easy to become enamored with something and then perceive that it's the optimal way to do things Mm. And I think what we really need to look at is that with most of these fasting strategies, they are in fact a, they're a hack. 
mm. right? They're a hack that allows people to maybe have a bit more flexi- flexibility and freedom during their non-fasting periods. Or they're a hack that allows people to auto-regulate their energy intake down if they're really having difficulties with that. And so they're obviously valuable, and I'm certainly not criticizing them because I've, you know, been involved with fasting. I, I, I know a fair bit about it. A lot of my clients fast. But does that mean it's optimal? Not necessarily. It could be that if someone were able to change other tactics within what they're doing in their overall lifestyle strategy they might actually get slightly better body composition results. And I would suspect that's true for people who do maybe day-on-day-off fasting or people who do maybe 5-2 very aggressively, things like that, because I I just don't think that, for example, muscle accretion and retention would be optimized with those types of aggressive strategies. It's not to say they're bad. It's not to say people shouldn't do them. But if that were one of the outcomes they were looking for to really optimize muscle mass, for example, it's probably not going to be the right strategy. And anyone who tries to say that it is because of some dogma around the superiority of fasting, I think they're just barking up the wrong tree. It's interesting. I have um, a couple of clients and how they use fasting is really just from that. Um, at the outset, we talked about auto-regulating calories. And it really, that's in fact what they use it for. So they know that in the weekend, they like to be a little bit more flexy with their food. They might have a couple of drinks. They like to have, you know, sit down and enjoy a platter of delicious food on a Sunday. And and they're like, well, you know what? It actually works really well for me to then go into Monday and skip breakfast, which is might be five or 600 calories. It's not a lot, but over the course of a week, it's enough to their calorie budget is such that they are able to um, have more calories in the weekend. And then they're not counting calories, but what's by virtue of what they're doing, they're, they're uh, reducing calories on that Monday. And I feel like that calorie cycling can actually be really beneficial for a lot of people, whether or not they necessarily count them themselves. And some people will, and they yeah. like planning it. But some people, just the knowledge that that's what they're doing, and they're not doing it every single day of the week, they're just knowing that that's sort of allowing them that flexibility. And I feel that's where a um, a time-restricted eating window um, or whatever you want to call it can be super helpful for some people who are already sort of where they want to be. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I think, you know, we all do that to some degree. And unfortunately, I think as well, there's been a bit of, there's been a bit of opposition to that, you know, from maybe more orthodox nutrition authorities who have looked at cycling or, you know, whether it be saving some calories or maybe even saving some carbs so that you can have them at another time. That's seen as being problematic eating. It's seen as being Mm. disordered eating. But disordered eating is really defined by the individual's responses. You know, it's defined by the fact that if, if they are... You know, a binge isn't a binge unless there's guilt and shame associated with it. Yeah. If you're simply overeating and you've given yourself the freedom to do that, that's not necessarily a problem. In fact, it's probably a very natural thing to do. Yeah. You know, I I can't imagine that as hunter-gatherers if we came across a beehive that we wouldn't just go crazy on honey. Yeah. Right? We would. But it was consistent with and appropriate to our environment because we wouldn't have had the largesse of you know particularly ultra refined foods that have driven up our energy intake and so I, I think it's a very natural thing but also when we get away from dogma a little bit we can start to be a little bit more flexible within 
any type of strategy like that. So here's an example. People may want to fast quite aggressively because it maybe saves a bit of calories for them. Maybe it saves a little bit of carbs for them to have at other times when they can be a little little bit more free. But if that fasting strategy reduces their protein intake to less than optimal levels, what's the problem with just adding some protein in? Mm. You know, in terms of, let's say you're typically doing a 16-8 fast, what would be the problem in, say, doing what I do, which is to have a big protein shake straight after training in the morning? Is that going to ruin all of your results because maybe it's going to slightly impact autophagy or maybe it's going to slightly impact that reduction in IGF-1? Well, not necessarily because the overall impact of having that extra bolus of protein is probably going to far outweigh those things. Yeah. So I don't think we can become too, you know, this plays into the question that I'm sure you get a lot. I get it all the time. What's the optimal length of fast? Yeah. Well, it's unanswerable because not just do no one does no one know, but it's context dependent. Yeah. So it, it always depends on the individual. Like the optimal length of fast for someone who is a habitual undereater is is probably to to sort of not fast, but by virtue of just sleeping, they're probably going to have, let's say, a 12-hour fast anyway. Yeah. That's fine. That's great. Who cares? Like, I probably fast for 12 to 14 hours a night because, you know, I stop eating, and I, by the time training's finished, I've got my shake and all that kind of stuff, it'll just be that naturally. Um, the, the research is actually pr- pretty good on the autophagy benefits of a 14-hour fast and the immunological benefits of a 14-hour fast, and I, I wouldn't need to go any longer anyway, but... I'm not necessarily looking for those outcomes because there are also other impactors of those things. Yeah. You know, people forget that a, a nutrient dense diet that is based around unrefined foods is going to have some of the benefits in terms of like helping to preserve NAD levels, for example. Exercise is going to help with mitochondrial health, that's going to help to preserve those as well. Uh, exercise is going to be a massive impactor of autophagy. Mm. And autophagy is not an on-off switch. It's like keto, right? It's not an on-off switch. It's not like suddenly, well, we've got autophagy occurring. <laughs> yeah. If if it didn't occur, if you didn't have natural cycles of or natural processes of autophagy, mitophagy, apoptosis happening basically all the time at some level along a spectrum, you'd be dead. Yeah. You know, so yeah. these things occur. It's just that they get ramped up at certain stages. Totally, and I and I agree with you on that. Uh fasting and the protein which is one of the reasons why with my Monday's Matter program it's pro- I I use that protein sparing modified fast so it's like a fast mimic but it's a day where people just eat protein and you know it's around about right might be it's between 100 and 130 grams of protein there's you know not much else sort of in there but it it's sort of my almost the space I've sort of evolved to where I feel comfortable saying to the general, you know, for most people, this is actually going to be appropriate. Of course, if I've got people who are more active on that plan, we'd bump up the calories. We put some carbs in there because actually their ability to fuel their workout and recover from that uh, trumps any sort of other additional benefit that you might get from just being super low everything on that day. Like, um, and that's a hard message to sort of sell people who are so sold on the idea of of fasting that they they're like oh but this one banana is really going to throw out everything and I'm like no no that's gonna be the making of you actually if you just sort of do it exactly it reminds me a lot of the discussions we used to have back in the 90s on how to optimize growth hormone and so you know people were you know not eating a lot of protein and they were um 
not eating for long periods of time after training, you know, all, all with the idea that it would result in some increase in growth hormone. But the problem is you become so undernourished that any increase in growth hormone is kind of inconsequential because you're then losing out on a whole bunch of other things. Yes. So, you know, we don't want to go for the, the small gain at the expense of the larger gains. But it's it's interesting what you're talking about as well here, Mick, because I was... For some reason, I thought I'm going to look back at the old anabolic diet that was published probably back in, I'm guessing, 96 or something, maybe earlier by, you know, Dr. Mauro De Pascali. Oh, yeah. And I realized that a lot of those things that I picked up from those guys back in the day and from Dan Duchesne, I, I kind of still do. Mm. And a, a lot of it is to do with banking, particularly carbohydrate. Yeah. Because for the simple reason that I know nowadays, I'm not as active as I used to be when I was, you know, competing and things like that. I I know that there are certain things I'm still probably going to do. Yeah. Like I'm going to have a burger on a Friday night. I'm going to have some fries with it. I'm probably going to have some chocolate bars or cookies in the weekend. So it makes sense just to to limit my carbohydrate during the week. Yeah. Which is basically the anabolic diet. Yes. And then allow myself a bit of a carb up in the weekend. Yeah. You know, it's it's just about finding those strategies that allow you to have that optimized intake over time. Yeah. Because, you know, why would I have half a cup of rice at lunch, which I don't really enjoy, Yeah. if that means I can't have a Snickers bar on the weekend? <laughs> I totally hear you. And I feel the same about, like, hot chips and beer. You know, like, I love a stout. So if it means that... I'm not going to have half a cup of rice with lunch because it means that I can enjoy half a stout at dinner or a stout at dinner, then that's going to be my preferred option. And that's the flexibility that is afforded by an approach like that. I think. Yeah. I remember in summer when I lived in Canada and I was working with the human motion team up there, uh, you know, we we're all sort of strength coaches and I was doing the nutrition for all of our athletes and things we all had this saying that um, we saved our carbs for beer. Yeah. So we would basically just eat meat and vegetables and we'd know <laughs> that, you know, we'd, we'd be having some beers. So that was uh, where our carbon take was coming from. Yeah. Perfect Weight Watchers approach, actually. Like I um, got a lot of my nutrition information and knowledge in, in my teenage years from going to Weight Watchers. And so they were very big on, um, on volume, like going for gold on vegetables and things like that, which is something which has remained part of my approach today and I because I'm a volume eater and I love it but equally like when I'm talking to people about um enjoying alcohol I do suggest them going light and lean if they're having alcohol with dinner if they're wanting to sort of minimize the overall impact of it because of course you know it's preferential oxidation alcohol will be oxidized before anything else fat is very easily stored and so if you sort of keep it light and lean you're minimizing that impact of or of that alcohol approach having said that though you know when Baz and I go out for date night which we will do again in level two and we enjoy makiki fries and wine I'm not thinking oh no you know this is all just going downhill no. you know a moment on the <laughs> a moment on the lips forever on the hips isn't exactly going through my mind it's like sweet chips and wine or beer is delicious oh absolutely and that's one thing that irrespective of you know, where a client is at or where I'm at in any particular process, I never completely eliminate those, those treats. Mm. You know, I might, I might have a metric where I sort of think, well, you know, for example, when I was, you know, doing these fairly, you know, rapid sort of fat loss cycles recently, 
I just do a little metric where I know how many meals I'm going to eat roughly in a week, right? Because I eat, you know, four meals a, a day. So I do the math, four sevens, 28 meals. Uh, I'd know that, you know, roughly 5% of those could, could be treats, mm-hmm. right? So that's not a lot. But if I'm in more of a sort of maintenance type phase or, you know, even gaining, then it's going to be somewhere between 10 and 20% of those meals could actually be, you know, functionally treats. Now, I know that's probably a little bit nerdy and, and quantified, but it's just because that's the way my mind works. Mm. It helps me to have some structure. I'm not stressing myself out with quantification. I'm actually giving myself freedom because then I have a, a structure within which to be free. And I think that's where a lot of the debate is is missed because people say, well, you're, you're so rigid, mm. but it's not rigidity. No. It's actually freedom but we always need some structure to actually feel completely free. As Jocko Willink would say, discipline equals freedom. 100% agree with that. And, you know, this whole idea of that having diet rules means that you're rigid and you can't be flexible, I think is completely missing the point because people get confident when they've got a set sort of structure. They gain confidence knowing this works for them and then they understand what might happen or, or from they understand how they can then do exactly what you've described and and have other things in their diet and not feel out of control, not feel like they're no longer sort of reaching their goals. You know, I, I feel there's a lot of freedom to be had from food rules too, actually. Oh, exactly. And, and so long as they're not, you know, overly restrictive or, and, and so long as they work for the individual, that's, that's, that's the, the key, right? Yeah. Cause what is restrictive to me might be completely sort of flexible and not at all restrictive to you. So it's sort of working within that individual yeah. scope. Interesting on the, if we go back a little bit to fasting and, and uh, protein and, and whatnot, I sort of feel like some of the people who are very, uh, who are experts in longevity and they may have written books on it and, and, and things like that. I don't feel they're very protein focused actually, you know, and, and when I've heard uh, the likes of David Sinclair sort of talk, he talks around this 10% of calories coming from protein as being, you know, what we sort of need to shoot for. And I, I do feel that. I mean, that's crazy. I think it's crazy. And, and what I get a sense of, he's an absolutely an expert in his field, but that suggests to me he's a, not an expert in, in protein metabolism and in requirements. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you can be an expert in a field without being an expert in the application of information to, to what's actually going to work for people. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's where, I, I think that's where you're, you know, an expert uh, a lot of the the people we work with, I think, are experts not in necessarily the the really nerdy lab side of things, but the translation of research into into application, into mm-hmm. clinical application, into functional outcomes. I think what we're often dealing with is what amounts to fairly again skinny effects over a long period of time for a particular hard endpoint being mortality. Mm-hmm. I think if we asked a bunch of people if if you well number one i don't think necessarily the research translates to the human experience very well anyway because we're looking at animals who have quite a, you know a very different life cycle this is one of the challenges i think we have with studying or, or applying particularly mouse models to humans is that they live for an incredibly short period of time anyway mm. now when we translate that to a larger mammal that lives for a long long time we need to consider that there are a lot more nuances in in how we live 
and the structures that the physical structures that we need to create and maintain for a long period of time. So we know that one of the biggest impactors of morbidity and mortality is muscle mass. And if we're going to lose muscle mass because of a really low protein intake, then I think that that's going to be a big issue in terms of uh, mortality and morbidity, which you're not necessarily going to see in a shorter-lived mammal. Um, Now, we're also what we're potentially looking at is fairly skinny effect at the end outcome being mortality, but that avoids the question of what's the quality of life through the lifespan. And most people would agree that having a higher protein intake and the benefits that provides uh, is going to outstrip that, not to mention that bigger factors that also play into mortality and morbidity are going to be heavily affected by a human's protein intake. And if we're limiting protein intake drastically through the lifespan, it's going to be a lot harder for people to have optimal satiety and autoregulation of energy intake. So potentially the, the negative outcome is going to be more. Um, yeah. And obviously quality, yeah, like I say, quality of life through, through lifespan yeah. is and a pretty it, big part of it. For sure. And, you know, if you're, if you're good at fasting three, three days a month, every month, and you don't notice a, a change in your body comp- composition for the worse or that you find it more difficult to maintain muscle mass, awesome. But it, it can, for some people, just things might not change on the scales, but they might notice other changes in terms of their body composition which which we need to I don't know it's always just good to good to reflect on whether or not you're doing something whether what you're doing is actually working or are you just doing it and not yeah. seeing that benefit I, mean, I just think that when we look at the research that's been conducted on humans I think overwhelmingly we see positive benefits from protein and you know even if there is a very minor reduction in, in lifespan I don't necessarily buy it, but if there is, you know, we need to look at health span. This is, that's been, I mean, we, we both know this, yeah. but that's been something that has changed appreciably for the worse in the modern human. So we often talk about the fact that we live a much longer lifespan and we don't, we live a marginally longer lifespan. We have a marginally longer lifespan now than uh, we might have had in pre-agrarian society uh, obviously lifespan did drop appreciably with sort of a- agrarian systems but it improved a lot um, predominantly through uh, reductions in child mortality when we correct for that the difference in lifespan wasn't that great but yes we live a little bit longer now but not much longer mm-hmm. but we we certainly live for a lot longer in pain and in distress and in poor health. And so, you know, that that I think needs to be part of the equation because it's not palatable for people to talk about. You know, do we prolong someone's life arbitrarily even if that quality of life is absolutely terrible? And is that a good spend on a personal level? Is it a good spend on a societal yeah. level? I, I don't know. I, I would suggest probably not. Um, But what things are going to help promote, yes, longevity, but more so a great quality of life throughout the lifespan? I think those are far more important. Yeah, nice, Cliff. And I unsurprisingly agree with you. We don't agree on everything, but I think 99% of what we talk about, we're probably in alignment. So maybe this is just a big old 
Echo, are we just creating an echo chamber? Probably. Do you reckon? But I, I think people listening in who aren't in our echo chamber will either agree or disagree, and I think that's good. You know, and there'll there'll be plenty of people out there who who don't agree with yeah with our yeah yeah position on certain things or your position on certain things, my position on certain things, and that's great. You know, because um, we all would have shifted our position on certain things over time. Uh, I'm always willing. And, you know, looking forward to shifting my position where the evidence shifts or where a compelling argument is made for something else. And I think if we can approach these discussions with that as a foundation and do it in a way that is as as far as possible free from logical fallacies, particularly the um, argumentum ad hominem, then I think we'll all be in a much better position because uh, I'm, I'm certainly not enamored with the way that social media has become um especially with call outs you know i don't really see mm. the point in calling someone out to pander to your your fans so that they can all agree that yes someone else is you know wrong yeah 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 because it's not constructive and so no. typically when people call out others or they they have ad hominem or create ad hominem attacks i just block them mm don't have time in my my life for that kind of rubbish i'd rather engage with people who we can have a constructive discussion even if i vehemently disagree with them Mm -hmm. and that you know that popped up on one of my threads because one of my friends said i i can't believe that you're friends with this person because they are you know crazy (laughs) and i said "I, i i don't want you to say that kind of shit on my thread because you're you're now getting ad hominem you might disagree with that person and i disagree with that person i think that 99 percent of what they say is wrong yeah but i'm still going to entertain their point of view because it will make me better as a person yeah there might be a small inkling in there of something they say which is correct and that might cause me to shift my position or even in you know when we're challenged by people who do have alternate positions to us we reevaluate our position to see whether it is in fact correct or whether there is some nuance to it. Mm. You know, we see that a lot nowadays with the vaccine debate because as I said last time, you know, last week when we chatted, I'm pro vaccine, but that doesn't mean that I believe vaccines are completely innocuous because vaccines do have adverse events. Mm. They do kill some people. It comes mm. down to risk versus benefit. And so we evaluate that pragmatically. And I'm always uh, very interested to be challenged by anti-vaxxers because often they bring up points that are worth me investigating so that I can understand the topic more. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's such a valid point, Cliff. And if you're in a, you know, if you have that mindset of, it's a growth mindset really, isn't it? Like it's not, you know, a lot of people sort of come at things unintentionally with this fixed mindset approach and a growth mindset doesn't mean you're always open to uh, changing idea or you're always going to be changing your opinion or flip-flopping between things or anything like that but it's just having the mindset that you can always sort of learn from other people and learn from others experiences and and use that information to then evolve your own thinking I think that's in every part of your life, that's sort of ideally where you'd be, right? Yeah. Well, I, I can't remember what the name for the what the term for this is, but there is a fallacy in which at any point in time, 
we believe that we either know all there is to know or that we're pretty damn close. When in fact, you know, in terms of the totality of what can be known, we know next to nothing. Yeah. And even if we look within our lifetimes, Mickey, when you studied nutrition first time around, when I studied nutrition first time around, they hadn't discovered leptin. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Isn't that just an example of how things can shift massively and we can discover like we didn't that they hadn't discovered the glymphatic system of the brain yeah or that that we had five quad muscles and not four i and i didn't know that so i was today this many years old (laughs) when i lived there in fact what you're referring to is the dunning-kruger effect that's Uh, the dunning-kruger effect is a little bit different that's when Uh, we um think we know it all when we overestimate yeah. Oh, yeah. So no. It's yeah. It's 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 similar to that. It's it's more of a temporal thing rather than a personal type of thing. Yes. What I mean is that through history, you know, at, at times we'll sort of think, well, for example, this is the science. The science says this, therefore, it's absolutely correct. Whereas I would say that that's a flawed position because what we can say is the evidence tells us this, so it's likely to be that this is the case. Mm. But there's still going to be nuance. There's still going to be shifts and changes, and there are going to be things we discover, like leptin, like the glymphatic system. We'll discover that the brain is way more neuroplastic than we thought it was. You know, all those that we'll understand that neurogenesis occurs. Mm. You know, we'll understand topics like autophagy a lot more than we previously did, although most people still misunderstand it, and I'm sure I misunderstand it on some level as well. I think you under you misunderstand how to pronounce it, to be honest. Autophagy. <laughs> well, you, you're, you're an autophagy person. I'm, I'm an, an autophagy, autophagy person. person. <gasps> That's fine. So, uh, Barry thinks that you say, um, uh, aqu- so if you go to a water park, you're going to an aquatic park is what I would say, like aquatic. He's like, it's aquatic. I'm like, no, no, no. It's not aquatic. It is aquatic. Does he say quad for quad muscles? <laughs> I'm going to ask him. I'm going to ask him that. In fact, he'll be editing this and we can, he can just reflect on the way that he, uh, <laughs> he pronounces. But well, I won't the, say anything the, else. The de- I'm very grateful that he is making Wikipedia happen. The, the debates are endless, aren't they, between um, fungi or fungi or, or GIF or GIF? Oh, there's no, there's no debating that. It's totally a GIFy. See, it's a GIFy. It's not even a GIF or a, or a GIF. It's a giffy. Anyway, I think now we, we just get <laughs> it into the weeds. Um, Cliff, always great to talk to you. I love getting your perspective. I love that this is yet another opportunity to jump on and just talk nutrition with you. And, and in a way, like, this is such a geeky conversation, but we both love it. And that's what I love about talking to you. And I think that's what a lot of people love listening to too. So thank you for I your love time. getting on the podcast mickey because it means um you do all the heavy lifting and i don't need to do uh, one of my own this week <laughs> that's fantastic and in fact you say i do all the heavy lifting that credit goes to barry he's the editor he's the he when i said he makes wikipedia happen i'm not joking he is actually the person like, all i do is get behind the microphone and do what i do best just talk he does all the uh heavy lifting with that so so, um, but I've got to have interesting people to talk to and you're always one of those people, Cliff. So thank you. Do you think I could headhunt Barry? <laughs> you Steal could. Steal away as my producer. <laughs> you could. He's doing quite a nice little sideline business over here. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> awesome, All right, Cliff. Mate. 
So uh, we know where we can catch you. You're at uh, Human Performance Nutrition, Holistic Performance Nutrition. Yep, at the Holistic Performance Institute, holisticperformance.institute. <laughs> That's hilarious. I've called you Chris and then I've mucked up your uh, biz name and all in the same podcast. People will be confused as to who I'm actually talking to. You haven't quite because Holistic Performance Nutrition is our nutrition side of things. So brilliant you got Great. it right. well, it's, the, it's the place that I always send people to when they're like I really want to upskill in nutrition but I'm not don't think I want to go down the university route and I'm like head to Holistic Performance Institute and they will sort you out we appreciate that Mickey boom alright Cliff you have a great day thanks Doc All right, team, hope you really enjoyed that as much as I do. Clearly, I enjoy having Cliff on the show and having conversations with him, and I'm sure that that won't be the last time that we get to chat to Cliff. Next week, I have the pleasure of talking to Mimi Kofta, who is an amazing ultra runner, and we talk all about her experiences of training, overtraining, relative energy deficiency in sport and bringing herself back from that and there's a lot of synergies with Mimi and I given our love of running, our love of nutrition and food and we chat all about that. Until next week team you can find me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin or on my website mickeywillardin.com where you can book a one-on-one consultation to chat with me We'll sign up to any of my evergreen programs that focus on fat loss, eating a lower carbohydrate, highly nutritious diet, or if you want a keto longevity reset, we've got that too. Or join the waitlist for Mondays Matter, which is my signature group program, which is an eight-week protein-sparing modified fast approach for fat loss. And you do it as a group, and that kicks off mid-January. But the way... But for more information, join the waitlist so you know how it's all going to roll out. All right, team, until next week, have a great week. See you later.